You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 156. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week in our Ask Us Anything segment, we answer a question on Chinese equities. We also have three Your Stock Our Take segments for your listening pleasure. Our first Your Stock Our Take this week came in from a listener on Pyrogenesis Canada Inc., symbol PYR in the TSX, which designs, develops, manufactures, and commercializes advanced plasma processes and sustainable solutions to reduce greenhouse gases. The stock, which surged to just under $12 in February, has dropped roughly 50% from its highs, and a listener asks us if it offers better value today. Our second Your Stock Our Take is on Parts ID Inc., symbol ID on the New York Stock Exchange. The owner and operator of, among other verticals, CarID.com, a leading digital commerce platform for the automotive aftermarket. A listener asks us if this company, which just went public in late 2020 via a SPAC, is a potential buying opportunity. Our third and final Your Stock Our Take is on Intuit Inc., symbol I-N-T-U on the NASDAQ, a global platform that makes, it's a software provider, TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, and Credit Karma, and the recently acquired MailChimp. The listener asks us if there is significant upside for this high-quality software service giant. So let's get into the show. I'd like to welcome my co-host this week, Brennan. Aaron, how are you guys welcome, doing? Welcome, welcome. Doing well. Welcome, doing well. Gentlemen. Yeah, d- definitely doing well. Uh, did you guys, uh, did we talk about or did you guys enjoy the debate last week? No, no, I don't think all, we really want to get into it. I think we did it. talk about it. And um, yeah. when I'm watching the debate, I'm really thinking a lot of the time, why do we even have these debates? Because... They don't really, and this is obviously nothing new, but they don't really say anything. I mean, they tend not to answer the question that they're asked. And when they do answer, it's, you know, it's a lot of a lot of nonspecifics, not really any concrete information given ever, except the fact that, you know, they're going to have every solution, a solution to every problem, um, and that uh, everything is a top priority. So I'm usually pretty unimpressed with the, with the debates, but I suppose it's a good idea just to hear see the people talk to see exactly how fake they are um and kind of rate it that way but i don't find you really get much in terms of you know information from it myself maybe i'm a little cynical i agree maybe i'm just the one the one thing that i did see is the moderator a couple of times and you never see this from much of the media in canada uh when uh you know for example justin trudeau was asked a question directly and went off talking about something else uh, she interjected and said we're talking about this topic can we stay on that which was you know refreshing to see but then you just get a bunch of 
you know, Certainly, going and, back and maybe to the that, talking maybe points that anyways. Maybe the purpose of the debate, really, because you could see how, you know, fake or, um, you know, how non-committal to answers somebody is going to be, right? Yeah. I mean, you expect a certain amount of it, for sure, from all politicians, but if somebody takes it, you know, to the end... Yeah, if you have a direct further, question... That can make them look worse, and, you know, you, you get to see them a little bit off-script, although not really off-script. Yeah, I mean, if you get a direct question, like, is the sky blue, and you start talking about, well, today I went shopping for, you know, Cheerios, and like, well, that, you know, please, can we at least answer the question, but, mm-hmm. you know, it looked like a couple of times some of the candidates were actually, you know, I question how many people would really question. even be undecided at that point. I feel that most people who are going to vote, really, the vast majority have already probably made up their mind at that point. I agree with that. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, the two uh, top parties are virtually tied in the polls. Virtually we'll see, tied. You know, we'll, we'll see, see what goes. happens. It'll that, be Monday. I know that by the next time we record, we'll know. So excellent. I think we'll that have a Brennan has been in a little that. bit of a quandary during this election because you know I heard, overheard him saying in the past he's always just voted for the marijuana party, but then of course <laughs> since 2018, yes. Yes. cannabis legalized. There's no need for a marijuana party, and that's yeah. kind of left Brennan searching for a new home. Mm-hmm. Basically, um, perhaps he'll go to the psychedelics party, which you know. Yeah. Oh, is that yeah. the new one? I, I don't think they're. I don't know. I, is it, I wouldn't say that I'm politically homeless. No, no, I wouldn't. But no. if I could just no. say one thing. Of, of course you guys are um i got thick skin i can handle it too um you know one thing that i thought was interesting about the debate as well is i was expecting or anticipating a overreaching segment to just be called the economy you know like they talked about the economy a bit in the in u.s certain, you get that not course, in canada course, it's a, but, it's a know, dirty word i just yeah. Yeah, it is a dirty word, but it shouldn't be a dirty word. And I was expecting, you know, an overreaching segment of just the economy. You know, they talk about what they want to do for the economy, uh, how they're going to balance the budget, yada, yada. None of that. You know, I was a little shocked. I'm not going to lie. As each topic came up, I was expecting it to, uh, to come up, but it didn't. Yeah, well, the people get what they deserve. Nobody wants to hear anything. They just want to hear, what are you going to give me? True. And nobody wants to hear anything about, um, you know, how how are you going to, you know, be more efficient in certain areas? Oh, that gets boring, boring. That's what you hear. And, you know, and then let's do, you know, how mu- how are you going to pay for what you're promising? Nobody wants to hear that because money just apparently grows on trees. But. Yeah. Well, it doesn't even have to. It just, it just grows on computer screens. Um, for <laughs> yeah, myself, well, what true. I would actually yeah. like to hear is I would like to hear some concrete um, ideas and policies on how we're going to encourage uh, entrepreneurship in the country, long-term prosperity, yeah, we talked about and that economic STEM. growth, and innovation, STEM uh, education at an early age. I mean, I, I personally think that you know it should be a part of the curriculum um, from kindergarten up. Right now, I know that that education is managed at the political political level, but there are things that federally the government can do to um, yeah, fund provincial it and level, encourage yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, at the provincial level, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, just before we get into our companies, I right before this segment, uh, Brennan was whistling um, Indiana Jones, right? So, so I'm. So we have this thing where I, 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 just to preface this, we have this thing where I'll reference like some actor, like say Kevin Costner, and I'll be going on about something, then I'll look at Brennan, I'll. <laughs> you have no idea who Kevin Costner is. What did he do now? I forget what that he's Brennan 26, right? And and I, I do this. So today, he was whistling Indiana Jones, so I made a reference to uh, Harrison Ford. And I'm, and I'm listening to him, and I'm like, uh, I'm like, you have no idea who Harrison Ford is, do you? 
And, and he, uh, no, no, I know. <laughs> I did. I did I know try to build so the case. He said, yeah, and you tried to build saying. the case, which was perfect. Right. Aaron, he says to me, He's that guy that was on all those westerns. <laughs> the westerns? What westerns the old has western. Harrison Ford ever been in? Oh, uh, I think I I'm westerns. like, no! Indiana Jones. He is Indiana Jones. He was wearing a cowboy hat, maybe, kind of, but... Yeah, No, it, it, Seriously, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Han Solo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Bla yeah. Blade oh, Runner. God. Patriot Games. Yeah. The yeah. Age of Adeline. Mm -hmm. I you know. Don't, you don't know those movies? Well, they... Hey, in, in Braddon's... Defense, they call Star Wars uh, a space western originally. So there you uh, go, Brennan. Thanks. You, for... you, you've got it there. Han Solo was basically a cowboy in space. So you, you've got it. Was it was fun. I like I, no, I think you were talking about Clint Eastwood, maybe. Yeah, maybe Clint Eastwood. I don't know. I, I'm bad with actors, but uh, I can't lie. That was pretty funny, uh, especially because I was trying hey, we, to cover my tracks. We have a good tracks. laugh. We have oh, a good yeah, laugh. we did, especially because I was trying to cover my tracks, you know, thinking that I knew who he was when I really didn't. Um, <laughs> well, even when I said, yeah, yeah, I said, he's Indiana Jones, you're just humming that. And, and you said, yeah, but he was in all those Westerns before. No, he's Han Solo. I know. Anyways. I yeah, know. I think you were thinking of Clint Eastwood, but. I'll just uh, stick to stocks and. Uh, you know stuff like that wow how, <laughs> yeah for sure how many how, no, many, how many how many uh new age millennial stars would we not know ryan that brennan wow. would know being a young man right so i guess we have to look at it from that point of view. brennan's Maybe an old soul he doesn't that, know any of them yeah, yeah that's no, true that's i literally don't know many of them either so yeah. yeah i know a lot of youtube characters i do know but i know aaron knows some of those as well so uh so yeah i like you know people who critically think and, and whatnot that's that's fun to uh yeah to and now as we get comments coming on what the hell does this have to do with stock exactly i guess we'll just yes. we'll move on yes yeah. we'll get to our first uh our first question brennan you had a question that came in from a listener kind of for ask yeah, us anything our, do you want me to read it I, or do you want to read it i can it read it here i don't I think it was leonard i kind of like reading it sure. uh, yeah so it came in from leonard yeah. via email he says i understand that the big chinese tech companies have had a significant correction about 50 percent he says after recent chinese government intervention considering your ongoing recommendations on a few tech giants are any of these big chinese tech companies now at a valuation and circumstance that it makes sense to buy them at current levels so what do you guys think well now we know you can read <laughs> we're good on that start you know just to start you know but aaron you have some thoughts sure right? so i, I have other than thoughts. my so stupid this, thoughts. you know the whole history of um, how the economy works in china and whether or not um it's safe to invest in companies that operate on mainland china betrayed in north america so this is a long-standing issue i find with the market it goes back really um to the 2010 2011 range there was a lot of focus back then on investing in companies based in china because of course there is such great growth coming out of the economy um and so there are a lot there there's there's a lot of activity around that time in terms of ipos or reverse ipos um where companies would be trading in canada trading in the us um operating in china and what happened in 2010 2011 is there was a huge number of scams that came to the surface and the most prominent of them being Sinoforest. So Sinoforest uh, was a, a, a timber lens company um, based in China. And it was, uh, I, I believe it was up to like a $20 billion market cap. So this was a major company. Um, somebody put out a short report on it, uh, identified a few things that, that got, um, 
you know, investors looking further. And it basically, the, the company ended up disappearing. So as far as, you know, anybody can tell, it was a complete scam. Um, you know, billions of dollars in value basically wiped off the table. But then there was also some smaller uh, examples of companies that uh, they they weren't, you know, at the top of the headlines. They were maybe, you know, 50 million to 100, maybe 200 million dollar companies um, that also just seemed to kind of vanish overnight. And there is one in particular I remember the issue was it was actually was a full IPO, went through all the process in North America, um, you know, had board of fairly respectable people in North America, uh, you know, went through reputable bank, went through reputable brokerage house, reputable auditor, it was Ernst & Young. And um, it turns out that they were completely falsifying their cash balance. So they had this huge cash balance. They It was completely falsified. And investors essentially, I mean, I think that there was, you know, there were some lawsuits after, but it's virtually impossible, I believe, to really go over to China and enforce those. So there may have been some small amounts of money paid out, but there were just many, many examples of these companies um, that all of a sudden in that 2011 timeframe, just kind of these things came to the surface and they just disappeared and investors basically took 100% loss on them. So ever since that time, there's been a high, high level of skepticism with respect to whether or not auditors can really truly monitor companies or regulators can monitor companies that are completely operating um, in China or other emerging markets and trading here. And our assessment of it is that, no, we don't really think that they can. Um, I don't know what has changed since then, but I will say when we're doing our screens, we're often coming in contact with companies, seeing companies that appear to have really great fundamentals on paper that are from that region, uh, but that just trade at rock bottom valuations um, because the fear is that there could be some financial proprieties that are just, you can't monitor over here. So that's a major risk. And, and it just, it is a major risk. And people have to decide when they're, you know, you're looking at a company, it's not, we don't have the same degree of confidence because it's a lot easier to monitor uh, a company that's, you know, based in North America or based in um, certain regions of the world. Uh, and then also it's it's easier to use the courts to enforce claims against companies like that. Whereas, you know, as far as I'm aware, nobody's been able to go over and, and really hold some of these people accountable in mainland China. So that's a major risk. But then in addition to that, there's the other major risk. And this is what Brennan was really talking about. These are, are you know, what's happening with large established companies. I mean, you look at a company like Alibaba, Tencent, um, some of the other massive companies. Uh, tech companies in, in China, like these are certainly legitimate companies with legitimate products. Um, but the risk really seems to be a huge unknown in terms of what the government is going to do, because the government is so involved in all facets, facets of life and the economy and the financial system. And oftentimes they seem to just choose the winners and then choose the losers. And, you know, unless you can really predict what they're going to do, the, the example with Jack Ma is, is a great example. Here you have one of the richest guys in the world, the richest guy in China, one of the most famous guys in the world. He says something that is not approved of over there, and all of a sudden he disappears from the picture. A ton of regulations are slapped down on his businesses. You know, these aren't small companies. These are multi-billion dollar businesses. Um, so th this is another risk. I personally, I don't like that kind of a system. Um, I'm not comfortable in investing in it really myself. So there could be some opportunities there. I'm sure that there are some opportunities there. Absolutely. 
but I think that anybody who goes after them really has to take into account some of the country-specific risks that go along with investing in that region. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good summary. I mean, even if, you know, we just found on a basic level, you could not trust the accountant to be able to do the basic checks. And Aaron talked about this, even confirming a cash balance in the bank. We have advised against investing in North American listed China-based com- companies for a decade or over a decade now. If you cannot trust the numbers from the big four accounting firms and like Ernst & Young was auditing these companies and ended up getting sued but uh, in, in a number of cases, but we cannot recommend the stock. It's, it's unfortunate, and Aaron touched on this. There's likely some good companies out there that get tarnished. Also some great ideas, innovation. It won't get funded. It's a shame, but... We uh, need to also mitigate risk in our strategy, and we find just too much risk investing in these North American listed China based stocks. And, you know, the question too went down to well, they've been cut by 50%. Is there value? Well, that this, the risk we're talking about there is still there. If it's, you know, because we've seen companies go to zero, we're not saying Alibaba, for example, is going to go to zero, but uh, you know, there's many other smaller companies out there, and there's many other companies where. The fundamental risk of, in terms of, in our opinion, the accountants not being able to do the work that they need to do to confirm basic numbers that we see on a balance sheet, then if we can't trust the balance sheet, we can't do our valuations, we can't recommend the stock. So that's the simple process that we go through. And it's one of the reasons why we've uh, advised against uh, those companies. For over a decade, and we'll continue to until we see a fundamental change. And uh, we don't see it on the horizon at any time soon. So I think that's it on that topic. Brennan, did you have anything else? Or we're good in terms of ask us anything? The only, yeah, that's good really for, there's no other questions. I guess my one question Mm -hmm. is, you know, so like we did peak fintech uh, last week, which again has that Chinese Mm -hmm. exposure, you know, and I do agree, you know, you have to be cognizant of the China risk. There's no doubt. Now, what if somebody liked a stock, thought it was trading at a decent value uh, in, you know, a Chinese stock, let's say even just peak fintech, you know, somebody wanted to take a position. Do you think it would be, you know, if you did want to add that stock to your portfolio, you should be only adding it, you know, in maybe a quarter position and treat that as a full position? Or would you still say, no, stay away completely? Like, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Just playing devil's advocate a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's going to, like everything, it's it's just going to kind of depend on the situation. I think that that's a good base point would be to say, okay, well, I want, you know, to take higher risk, speculate even mm-hmm. on on a name in, in a riskier region. So the most, pr- like, the, like the, the simplest way to do that and manage risk would just be to take a smaller position. So maybe it's like a quarter position. Um. You know, if it's one company in your entire portfolio and, you know, you just particularly really like that company for some reason, you've done a lot of research on it. Maybe you take, you know, a full position in that one company. But I think it's the the more the idea is looking at that as risk capital. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there is people back in that time frame that I was talking about, 2010, 2011, where they had, you know, 30 percent or more of their portfolio invested in companies that were operating in china and like that's the type well, of yeah because the growth story of the china story is was amazing. amazing the valuations were pretty yeah. good they, they weren't yeah. dirt cheap because people didn't perceive most people didn't perceive the level of risk that that you know ended up yeah. transpiring but um the valuations were good many of them had like these huge cash balances on their balance sheets which i mean 
you know, like I said in the one example, it was completely uh, falsified, right? And I mean, I can't, there's been no cases, you know, fraud can happen anywhere. Like, like, let's get that straight. There are things you can do in your financial analysis, things that you can check to try and limit it, to try and identify different warning signs and red flags. Um, over the course of your investing time frame, like you can never eliminate the, 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 the possibility completely, um, regardless of where you invest. But, you know, I've never heard a situation in Canada, for example, where like RBC was falsifying a bank balance for somebody like cash on a balance sheet is usually something that, you know, if it's audited by a reputable auditor is something that you should normally have been able to. Yeah, they, they can walk into a bank and ask if the cash is there, you know, so, you know, it, not exactly with that process, but, you know, like you're essentially that wasn't happening and maybe you know, and I, as i said i don't know if there have been reforms that have changed that since then but mm -hmm. i have seen no evidence of that at least that i've been made aware of so um you know and the the issue is too it's on valuations too like the, the larger players investors know this so you know if you look at companies in the u.s that are north american listed china based they don't get they don't they, they they get a fraction of the multiples on their stock than you know a similar listed uh, North American based or, you know, global company, a software company, for example, if it was a software in the, in most cases, because this China based risk is factored in. So you might say, oh, this looks cheap. It's trading at 10 times earnings. The market's trading at 20. Well, but if it always trades at eight to 10 times earnings, it's, it's not really cheap. It's the multiple it's always going to get unless there's a fundamental change, which doesn't seem to be on the horizon. So it's always going to get that severe risk premium. So is it really that cheap? So it's hard to, you know, and when you're talking factor about that risks in. that we're referring to, like the potential for financial fraud or just not being able to properly monitor the companies or enforce against them, um, then valuation really becomes kind of irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen companies over the last five years that were trading at like three, four times earnings with great growth yeah. and great balance sheets and, you know, strong earnings according to their to their financial reports. But yeah. when you see something like that, it's like, okay, well, the market's not buying it. Right. Like it's just, yeah. it's not like, it's not, it's and not about, yay, I found this really cheap, great company. It's like, you felt like the market's not buying it. So if you know something that the market doesn't, maybe you do. Okay. But I, you know, the risk is there. It also defeats the purpose of being a public company. If you're trading, we've seen two to three, four times earnings. Um, the, the purpose out there is that you can access capital. You could issue, issue shares. You don't want to go to the market if you're actually trading at two, three, four times earnings it's it's hard to buy another business that's non-public if, if that's what you're going to do and make it accretive if you're issuing shares when you're severely undervalued so it really you know it makes it for a situation where you might as well not be public in those situations so you know, there's a many reasons why we just advise against uh, those companies risk and just the perceived multiple that they're getting. And if we see a company trading at high multiples that has exposure to there, it, it, it is a situation where perhaps once in a while it can work, but in many cases, the risk isn't being factored in, in our opinion. So Good that's where it's worrisome to us. Good. Yeah, so let's move on to uh, our, our company, our first Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, our take buy sell or hold 
gets on uh, Pyrogenesis, came in via Andy via YouTube. Uh, Thanks for your analysis, guys. Was previously in Brookfield Renewables, but sold when it spiked. Uh, looking to buy and I was wondering if you guys could do some analysis on Pyrogenesis plasma technology companies doing a lot of exciting stuff quite a high valuation but love a second opinion so Pyrogenesis Canada Inc symbol PYR on the TSX price around 533 895 million dollar market cap what does the company do designs develops manufactures commercializes advanced plasma processes and sustainable solutions which reduce greenhouse gases and are economically attractive alternatives to conventional processes more dirty processes now pyrogenesis has created proprietary patented advanced plasma technologies that are currently being vetted and adopted by industry leaders in four large markets iron ore pelletization aluminum waste management and additive manufacturing so very interesting tech in the business too much to get into in a quick hit like this but we'll look at the recent results from the company q uh q2 revenues up significantly 289 percent to 8.3 million and the company actually reported a massive loss in the period of roughly 20 million but that was due to changes in fair market value of strategic investments and share-based compensation if you adjust these out, it was profitable in the quarter. There was cash flow here. Operating income was about 850000 The issue is that only equates to roughly a half a cent per share based on the 166 million shares weighted average outstanding. So the backlog of contracts was up to about $32 million, $32.1 million as of August. Um, our conclusion here, on the positive side, we have interviewed pyrogenesis management and found them to be knowledgeable and confident in the growth prospects in their four core markets there appears to be a growth path ahead for the company we've seen sales increasing for the last three years 2019 4.8 million 2020 was 17.7 on a trailing basis about 29 million so good growth there they have a strong balance sheet 18 million in cash no significant debt they have a strategic a strategic investment, 27 million shares roughly in a company that's TSX Venture listed, HPQ Silicon Resources, uh, which current market price 71 cents, so it's worth just under 20 million. This can fluctuate significantly. It would probably be difficult for them to just sell 20 million shares right now, but it is a positive investment for them. They have a partnership with them as well. Solid backlog here as well, like we said. On the negative side, the company has just, like we said, broken really into positive cash flow, approximately $1.2 million in the last quarter. Despite the company losing 50% from its February highs, it still boasts a market cap of close to $900 million. This is high given the current cash flow and the factors in a significant amount of future success. Current valuations are a speculative bet on management executing in new markets, which are uncertain. In, it is really a classic high risk for potential high reward, reward situation. This may intrigue some investors, but our style is to uncover businesses with current fundamental value and significant growth upside if executed on. Pyrogenesis holds significant growth upside for sure, but one of our basic criterion, that's one of our basic criterion, but the current lack of operational positive cash flow for the last 12 months and high trailing valuations prevents us from recommending the company at this time. We continue to monitor Pyrogenesis, find it interesting, but cannot recommend it right now. Perfect. And that's that's what it basically comes down to. If, uh, you know, show, show us the cash flow, one of the first things we look at uh, drives our 
clients like Boar's our clients to death because whenever they're <laughs> bringing companies to us, the first thing we'll look at is whether or not the company has revenue and cash flow. If it doesn't, uh, you know, we don't go, we don't provide any more research on it. We're just like, it's not there yet. Um, but it's yeah. been an effective way over the years of avoiding a lot of unnecessary risk in the market. And I mean, we've been yeah, monitoring and- pyrogenesis for a while now. And I mean, we're starting to see them work into profit. So, I mean, they're in the right direction. They're just not quite there yet. And sorry, Ryan, I cut yep. you off. Yeah, and the share price has actually come down and it's, you know, getting into a range. But, you know, you're still 900 million, like last quarter, 1.2 million. Even if you annualize that, the price to cash flow would be, you know, it's a massive multiple there. It's a bet on the future. And if everything works out, it could be a significant returner in a portfolio. But we find that it's not, this is nothing against pyrogenesis as a business in itself. We think they're doing a lot of good things. We liked, like, I like the interview with management that we did. The issue is if you have 20 stocks in your portfolio that are completely dependent on what happens in the future. I mean, every company is dependent on what happens in the future, but without proof of concept really in the past um, and are trading at higher valuations, it's a higher risk than we want to position up overall portfolio. Maybe it could be a one stock in a portfolio and you know that risk, you know, and you take a smaller position, but we're trying to build as many positions that we have that have current decent to good fundamentals and valuations, plus the same upside as a pyrogenesis. Now, it's hard to find, but that's why we look at thousands of companies. So let's look at our next uh, Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. It's Intuit Inc., symbol I-N-T-U, came in from Ram via Facebook. They said, hey, uh, there, there, I was wondering if you could get your take on Intuit. Thank you. So Aaron's going to take that I'm gonna one. I'm going to take that one, yes. Uh, Intuit, uh, the company trades at a share price right now of about $575. It's a $156 billion market cap company. Uh, Intuit is what they are. They're a financial software company. And the products that they have include their small business accounting software program, QuickBooks, uh, their personal tax solutions program, TurboTax, and there's also uh, other areas of their business as well that have more recently been acquired. So Intuit has been a tremendously successful company. The stock is up 80% over the last year, 400% over the last five years. Both the QuickBooks and the TurboTax programs are dominant players in the respective markets, each of them maintaining market shares of over 70%. In the last quarter, company's revenue increased 41%. Uh, up 25% over the last year. Adjusted earnings per share were up 9% in the last quarter and 24% over the last year. The balance sheet is healthy with net cash. Intuit just recently announced the acquisition of MailChimp for $12 billion. MailChimp is the largest email marketing company in the world with an estimated market share of 60%. This expands Intuit into an entirely new business segment. Last year, the company also purchased Credit Karma for about $8 billion. The company has put out guidance for fiscal 2022 and expects full year revenue growth of 15 to 16% and adjusted earnings growth of 13 to 16%. Based on the company's expectations for the upcoming year, Intuit is trading at a price to earnings multiple multiple of about 50 times. So there are a few things that I would look at with Intuit. First, the valuation at 50 times earnings and expected to grow at about 15%. The valuation is not cheap. 
It's not cheap relative to where uh, we would historically see valuation multiples for similar companies, uh, whether or not you're looking long-term at a long-term average or even just an average over, say, the past three to five years. That said, valuations in the market are elevated today, particularly for growing software stocks. I personally would find a valuation of 30 to 35 times more palatable, of course, but in the context of the current environment, into its valuation of 50 times next year's earnings is not completely unreasonable. Not unreasonable, assuming that the business continues to grow at or above that 15% range. Key things to look at are if the markets that the company operates in, namely the accounting software, the tax prep software markets, now the email marketing uh, market, are these markets continuing to grow? Uh, and are Inuit's products in these markets continuing to increase in market share? To answer these questions, what we would do, we would take a look at various sources to get a forecast on market growth, market size. We can compare these numbers to uh, the company's own reported financial results and to those of their closest competitors. I also often find it useful to look at product reviews and read blogs in other industry sources to get a sense of how these products compare with those of competitors. This is also where a conversation with management can fill in a lot of those gaps. So we're not going to do a full market analysis um, on the products today. From the cursory analysis that I did do, it does appear that the markets that the company is positioned in are growing. Uh, and I do, I do believe that the company does possess generally strong fundamentals. I think that, it, that based on this analysis that I've done, there is a case to be made for further research into, into it. Yeah, no, I think it's a good summary. And I think if you were looking to buy it uh, at more elevated historical valuations now, I think your time horizon would be something to keep in mind. Uh, probably no idea what it does over the next year. But if you look, you know, two to five years out, buying a high quality business with recurring revenues, solutions that are, uh, you know, used across the planet. The, you know, those are good things to put in the plus column. Valuation's a little high, but if you're, you know, if if it grows at 15% every year, you look five years back on a good business like that, and it's likely a, a decent purchase. Sure. In the near term, if there was a correction, when you're, you know, companies trading at 50 times next year's earnings, they likely have a pullback. But, uh, you know, the market in general probably has a pullback. Obviously, well, does obviously in a, in, a, in a correction. But, you know, time horizon would be what I would look at there. And if you're owning a quality business over a longer term, it's, it's likely a good uh, a good investment. Certainly, if that fifteen percent, but we have to do more analysis. If that fifteen percent growth continues, yeah. just for example, for five years, they double their earnings per share, right? So, exactly. assuming the outlook yeah. continues to be positive, they grow into the valuation of fifty times earnings today very easily. The risk, of course, maybe they grow fifteen percent next year, and then after that, the the growth rate drops below. 10% potentially. Yeah, if it, yeah, if it goes that, to that single digits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'd like to just relate it to that one article that I wrote about, you know, Warren Buffett's strategy versus Charlie Munger, where Charlie Munger kind of focuses on finding those good companies at fair value, whereas uh, Warren Buffett kind of looked more at like the stocks that were trading at rock bottom value. Uh, you know, that were good companies that should eventually reflect, you know, a better multiple, you know, and it's just, again, coming back to as long as it is, like Aaron said, going five years out, they continue to grow, you know, that is going to be a good stock going forward. So just wanted to say that. 
Yeah, you you want to pay real careful attention to valuations, but you don't want to buy a bad business that has a good valuation. So you exactly. got to you got to you know having a great business is at a more just reasonable fair valuation is often better than you know something you think is super cheap based on valuation that really isn't the greatest business. All right, well, let's move to our uh, last, I believe it's our last Your Talk, Our or Your Stock, Our Take, Your Talk, Our Stake. No, I want a stake right now. That's what, I used to call this it point, our, our Stock, Your Take, which didn't really <laughs> Nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. But. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. So it's on parts ID uh, and Brennan has the pleasure because he's a car guy, I right? Am a car so guy. we're gonna yep. call him the car guy. What are you driving? You're gonna Brennan? talk about uh, a Subaru a WRX. So uh, it's a nice little little sports car. Yeah. The man is racing around the, the wild streets of Saskatchewan or Saskatoon. Uh, I drive really slow. I save it for the racing at fifty kilometers an hour. I, right? I save it for the racetrack, which I do occasionally do. Um, anyways, let's uh, take a look at uh, Parts ID Inc. This came in from Dave, uh, who is a podcast supporter and recently became a client. So thanks for becoming a client, Dave. Uh, so Parts ID Inc. ID on the New York Stock Exchange, currently trading at a price of $5.95 and a market cap of $192 million. So Parts ID is a digital commerce company focused on providing parts and accessories within the automotive and other niche markets, including boats, camping, and recreation. Uh, the company initially launched as CarID.com back in 2008 and has become a dominant player in the space. Uh, I actually used the website to purchase car parts uh, in 2010 for my own Subaru, so I do have uh, some experience with them, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised that uh, they became public via a SPAC in late 2020. So a few key points on the business. Uh, on September 8th, the company announced adding multiple original equipment parts manufacturers to its supply chain, including Dodge, Ford, Jeep, Honda, Toyota, and Lexus. Uh, so it's nice to see that where generally the company just kind of focuses on more smaller uh, brands. So it's nice to see that they're actually bringing on parts from larger car manufacturers. Uh, as well, on March 24th, the company announced an agreement to expand its tire installation network to over 12,000 installers by the end of the year. Right now, it has about 2,000 shops in its network, uh, and essentially someone can order tires and simultaneously book an appointment with one of these shops so the tires will go to that shop and then you can just show up at your appointment time. So it's kind of convenient. So let's take a look at the recent financial results this is for Q2 2021. Revenue was up around 14.5% to $130.4 million compared to the same quarter last year. The increase was attributable to a 9.2% increase in conversion rates and a 20% increase in average order value, which was partially offset by a decline in traffic on their website. Adjusted EBITDA was about $4.2 million, a decrease of 24% compared to $5.5 million for Q2 of last year, and this decrease was partially due to higher advertising expenses, trying to get the, uh, the word out there on the website, and net profit was just slightly into the green at about $600,000. Uh, looking at their balance sheet, they are flush with cash with about $27.3 million in net cash. And this is a lot of this cash is, of course, still from its IPO. Now, if we look at the revenue over the past four years, 
uh, for years. Growth did stall slightly in 2019. So let's just look here. So in 2017, they did 245 million. In 2018, they did 289 million. In 2019, they did 288, so it was a flat. And then in 2020, they did 401 million. Uh, which was up 39% because of, you know, the COVID push to online. Um, so, you know, we have seen some good growth from the company year over year, uh, except for, you know, that 29 or 2019. And on a valuation basis, so I did calculate the enterprise value to EBITDA for a few of its competitors. So right now, Parts ID is trading at about 11.2 times EV to EBITDA where their primary uh, competitor, carparts.com, is trading at about 49 times EV to EBITDA. So based on that uh, competitor, it does look like Parts ID is trading at a great multiple. But when we look at a couple of the larger competitors in the States, such as AutoZone, AutoZone is trading at 11.3 times, so very similar to Parts ID, and Advance Auto Parts is also trading at about 11.1 times. So again, very similar multiples, while AutoZone and Advance Auto Parts are way, way larger businesses. You know, Parts ID has an enterprise value of only 164 million, whereas AutoZone and Advance Auto Parts are you know in the billions with AutoZone being around 42 billion. So keep that in mind when we're looking at those valuations. Now our take, Parts ID operates in a very competitive space, but the company does provide a diverse product offering for almost all types of enthusiasts. I see a reasonable runway for growth considering the company is bringing on OEM parts to its product catalog, is expanding new market verticals, has its own private label brands with about 11 so far, and is growing its tire installation network. So I do think that it has an interesting offering. However, with no financial guidance and a high watermark for revenue in 2020, or potentially a high watermark uh, for revenue, driven by the online push from COVID-19, it is difficult to determine whether going forward they will be successful in continuing to grow their top line revenue at a similar pace in 2020 and beyond, or sorry, in 2021 and beyond. Now, following the company's IPO, the business is flush with cash and trades at reasonable multiples in relation to peers. If we look at its primary competitor, carparts.com, it looks to be trading at reasonable multiples, but when comparing it to larger brick and mortar names, I would argue that it trades uh, near fair value. Now, if Parts ID can continue to grow at a double digit rate, there could be some value here, but ultimately it would be great to speak with management to get an indication on the business's growth outlook and really see what they're guiding towards for uh, the full year 2021 as well as 2022. Yeah, I think it's an interesting business, um, you know, and we're monitoring it right now. We'll probably reach out to management and do a, a quick interview of the company uh, just to get a better feel. Uh, you know, there's some cash on the balance sheet from the recent uh, SPAC kind of IPO. Um, the margins are, we, we know it are relatively low, but you kind of would expect that they're, you know, an online platform kind of distributing product. Um, it intrigues me the move into like do it for me the installing of the uh, of the tires which yep. you know tires are probably an easy some sometimes an easier purchase online and just getting that done in one click you know is a, is potentially there may be a high a ability to uptick margins there so you know those are some of the things we'd look at with management why did I think revenue the growth rate in the Q2 over last year decelerated. 
uh, from the first quarter. So we'd, you know, ask why down to 14% from, I think they were, you know, well above that in the first quarter. Was there, you know, people have been at home during the pandemic, during the lockdowns. Uh, do you expect, you know, we'd ask if there, there to be less growth going forward because less people are cooped up and staring at their cars in their garage and, you know, going forward as you get a more normalized environment at some point, uh, do growth rates go down to a lower level? They have to continue to spend on advertising. So, you know, that was one of the reasons I believe that uh, uh, profitability on an adjusted basis even was down in the quarter. So, you know, do you have, you know, what is your customer acquisition cost? All these things. Can you, how do you uptick margins over time? Because they're actually coming down right now. So all of those things are things we'd answer, but certainly relative to some peers like EV, the EBITDA basis, um, you know, AutoZone isn't like Brennan compared. It's not a direct comparable like he knows. Um, And the the car parts company looks like a more direct comparable. We'd have to dig into that business. Why are they getting such a more significant multiple than this company? What the relative size of those firms? So all the things that we look at going forward, but it certainly piques our interest in this segment. Uh, and we'll do more due diligence going forward. We thank you for the question. Aaron, did you have anything to finish? No, nothing really. Just, uh, you know, we want to see we want to see that profitability on the bottom line, first and foremost, yeah, to, to yeah, really validate sure. the business model. Um, yeah, for sure. Show what that, that what they're doing is is producing something for the for the shareholder. Right. Because ultimately, that's what you're investing in is, is the ability for a company to pay, you know, somehow pay out profitability to its investors. Now, that doesn't that may be in the form of dividends one day. It may be in the form of just reinvesting that money back in the company for more growth. Right. But one way or another, that's essentially, you know, what you're getting um, to work with is the profitability on the bottom line. So um, that's the way we look at it. That's what we would look for. Excellent. Anything to finish on that, Brennan? Are you good? I think we're good. We're good. Okay. Well, I advise you, Brennan, to look up Harrison Ford, watch a few of his movies before the next time we convene here, and uh, uh, maybe you'll know who he is next time and not get him confused with uh, Clint Eastwood. But actually, we don't even know if it was Clint Eastwood. It, honestly, we had some I fun think with we, that. Got, we have a pretty good idea. I think you have a pretty good yeah. idea. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, you, yeah, we know. You got That's it. good. He's a great producer now too. So, director. So, yeah. Anyways. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Keep your questions coming in. Ask us anything. We like to discuss the China-based companies, uh, North American listed this week. Keep them coming into our Your Stock, Our Take. I think we're going to, we got a couple questions. We might do a, a debate next week on one individual stock. Uh, so keep those coming in and we'll answer them. Keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We can keep pumping out the content here. And as always, I wish you profitable investing. Profitable investing. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.